Good morning and welcome to another episode of Advocacy Archives with Esther. Um, today we're going to be talking about case management. Um, some people would also call this ongoing advocacy. Um, we would like to call it case management just for the purposes of this segment, um, but in reality we'll unpackage that um, and how we do it. Um, maybe what looks a little bit different about our style of engagement than some other advocacy models and why we believe in it. Um, and how it serves complex trauma survivors. So without further ado, let's talk about case management. Um, when I describe mm -hmm. our version of it, um, and if you've worked at Safety Compass, you've probably heard me say things like, we do spider monkey case management. <laughs> That's what I tend to refer to it as because it is not passive. Um, we don't wait for people to come to us. We believe in the power of choice, but we also believed in trauma-informed work, which takes into account um, trauma brain, trauma responses, um, being overwhelmed, feeling the throes of depression, um, feeling isolated and not understanding systems. Uh, and for all those reasons and more, we are pretty assertive engagers and we do um, utilize the assertive engagement framework um, for our sort of theory behind the work and uh, the model um, in terms of how we implement our work. So what is case management to us? I think it's a few things. I think it's building trust. I think it's creating and modeling a sense of community. Um, I think it's demonstrating healthy boundaries along the way. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes into that um, sort of breaking down the sort of cycle of reacting and attaching, reacting and attaching, and sort of creating a sense of stability and consistency that allows people to rest in um, the belief that we'll be there tomorrow like we said we would because we've continued to prove that over time and that builds trust that um, naturally didn't exist at the beginning for good reason. So um, modeling those boundaries, um, I think it gives us an opportunity to practice motivational interviewing and then do that over a long period of time. The longer we get to know people, the more opportunity we have to do motivational interviewing, the more nuanced it can be, the more sort of bank of credibility we build up to push back. Um, and when we're holding discrepancy, um, highlight more nuanced and sometimes more sort of charged uh, content and that will allow for hopefully further insight and movement through stages of change. So motivational interviewing is our sort of key effort in terms of what we're doing with people um, throughout, sort of weaving it throughout our case management contact with people. Uh, the results it renders are beautiful and self-led by survivors. Uh, it amplifies their power of choice and just can't say enough about the beauty of motivational interviewing. So uh, that will have to be a separate conversation to dive into what is motivational interviewing, how do you implement it, um, what does it look like uh, when used over a long period of time, the fact that it doesn't have to be clinical work, that'll be a separate conversation. But for now, know that we, we utilize that in case management. And we also do safety planning that then adjusts to people's, um, their, their changes in their stages of change. The stages of change 
are another sort of benchmarks of movement that people will experience as they contemplate change, they contemplate potentially leaving the lifestyle, leaving the game, leaving their pimp or their boyfriend or trafficker, however they define them, and then moving on into what is it like to try to go square? Um, What does that identity look like for them? How is their identity been um, conflated with and sort of collapsed into their trauma? And how do we work up out of that? So there's a lot that's going on as people work through the stages of change and our safety plans have to be modified every time that they move through a stage of change. Um, Every time that they make a new decision, enter a new environment, change geography, change partners, change pimps, um, change the venues they're being exploited in. There's just so many constantly evolving dynamics in the industry that make us... um, sort of if we're doing our jobs well, um, alter our, our safety plans with people. So all that's going on. And um, for all those reasons, we call this spider monkey case management because, like again, it's not passive. It's very active. It's very engaged. There's significantly more contacts involved than your average domestic violence or sexual assault case, not to downplay the significance of those cases or... Um, the depth in which people as an advocate might be involved in someone's case or in supporting them. Um, I've seen some statistics that would say on average, there's about a 14 to one ratio, meaning that for every one contact, an average domestic violence case would take in terms of case management, 14 contacts will happen on a trafficking related case. And I believe that to be true. Having done both types of advocacy, I would say 14 to one is generous it may be significantly greater than that in terms of a ratio of involvement um, in what's successful in supporting people. So just very, very active. Um, then moving forward, just like how do we actually do case management? Now you know a little bit about maybe our model and why it's maybe unique compared to some other types of advocacy. How do we actually do this work? And you've probably heard the term victim-centered approach a lot and I think it can almost lose its meaning because everyone says they do it and it's thrown around pretty loosely but when we say we do victim-centered work we focus on the perspective of the victim survivor um, as they engage in all these different systems that are sort of interplaying in their life and their own perspective on it helps us uh, determine how we can best support them. So we don't sort of join the sea of professionals around them and look at them to tell us what to do. I think that that's one approach to victim-centered work. Look to the survivor to tell us what to do. (laughs) But that's putting a lot of pressure on them to understand what their options are. So I would say, I'm a very visual person, so I would say instead to do good victim-survivor-centered work Imagine that you are, you know, the person, the survivor in the middle of a circle mm-hmm. and the circle is just a circle of professionals surrounding them. And there's just all these different people that they're exposed to in the criminal justice system, the social justice system, the medical system, you know, child welfare, faith community, like all the people that they interact with on a professional level circling around them. And from their perspective, you know, they're in the middle but they have to know what does each one of these people mean to me, like, mean to them. Um, 
what does this professional have to offer me? What is my responsibility to them? What are my potential liabilities if I engage with their system? Um, What do I have to gain from that system? How do I navigate that system? How do I even get in touch with that system? What are their hours? What are their hotline numbers? What are their, you know, methods of communication? And everyone's going to be different in every system. Every subculture is different. Some are punitive. Some are not. Um, Some require them to reach out. Some will be reaching out to them. It's all different and it can be very overwhelming. Even if you're a professional who understands the work and has been involved in the same system, it's still overwhelming. So when we think about this person in in the middle of a large circle of people, you know, they're dealing with complex trauma brain. They're likely dealing with depression, potentially acute suicidal ideation, lack of future ideation. Um, Their coping strategies often involve avoidance. Um, They may be experiencing a lack of access to transportation. Um, They may not control their own access to a cell phone or communication device. There's just all these barriers to them accessing help, even if they did understand the web that is those services in you know, justice seekers around them. And we want to believe that we're all, you know, we're all here for probably for the same reason, right? We want to help people, but um, we hold a lot of power, power inherent to the fact that we understand our own landscape better than they do. We just do. And we have to try to level the power differential by giving them more information and seeking them out, seeking to help them understand, not waiting for them to come to us they may not even know the right questions to ask. It's like you don't know what you don't know, and therefore you can't ask questions to solve it when you don't even know what you don't know, if that makes sense. So I'd like to say when we talk about victim or survivor-centered work, we walk mentally, we will walk into the middle of that circle with the person and think empathetically, what is it like to be here? What do they probably not know yet? What might they need access to that they don't even realize they need access to? We're not going to wait for them to ask us because they probably don't even know to ask. We're going to share. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're mm-hmm. looking for housing, we're not going to assume that they understand. That might be making 12 phone calls, 12 different screening attempts, and being told no every time. We're going to offer to make the phone calls for them and call them back when we have the one place in the state of Oregon that has a bed, right? Because we all know how difficult beds are to find. And that's just one example, but It's an empathetic response to what it may feel like to be navigating that sort of sea of potential options and, you know, potential minefields and potential liabilities um, as they work through their involvement with the different um, folks at the table. They may have a criminal case that they're involved in as a victim. They may have a criminal case that they're involved in as a perpetrator. They may have a child welfare case open. They may have a juvenile um, justice case open. They might have self-sufficiency cases open um, and some in different states. Uh, They might have an interstate compact case working itself out. So there's just so much that could be going on. And we want to help navigate that for them and come back to them basically with a silver platter of here are the options that actually apply for your, you know, your situation, your life. Here's how to access these people. What can I do to help? Can I help make phone calls? Can I help set up appointments? How are you going to get to your appointments? Have you thought that through? Do you need help um, getting to those appointments? So we're thinking all those things through, and then we are adjusting our work to benefit them where they're at considering their own sort of unique case circumstances.
So now let's talk about resiliency building. Um, we believe in resilience. We believe that case management is resiliency building. And as we work with people, we have many countless opportunities to reflect back to them selectively. That's part of the motivational interviewing process. But when you believe in resiliency building, you frame your reflections upon people's strengths um, intentionally with a goal of building resilience. So as we're working with people and we are selectively reflecting, we're reflecting back um, opposites in thought and action, right, to create highlight ambivalence, which is, you know, the power of motivational interviewing is highlighting ambivalence. People will walk through that because ambivalence is, uh, does not feel comfortable. And so people will work their way through it, um, given the amplification of it. And as we're reflecting things back to people, we're also using those opportunities to speak power back into them that we see coming from them, speak worth back into them that we see coming from them, speaking over them the things that we see about their nature and their personality and their strength set, the things that are unique to them and beautiful about them that they may have completely lost sight of or literally never been told. So imagine and we probably can't, to be completely honest, we probably can't imagine. And that's, you know, that's gets into a conversation around privilege and access to many things from birth that many of us will never understand around, uh, around most of the lives of many of the people we work with, uh, if not all. But if we do the best we can to empathize with where they're coming from, having been in an environment that does not speak worth back into them, it's the antithesis of that. They're identity has been you know reframed in dollar signs and sexual servitude basically it's the opposite of humanity really so when we're speaking into them as we're doing our reflective listening we're holding ambivalence we're becoming a mirror that highlights in terms of giving them tools for sort of work through the stages of change but also highlights their strengths what we're reflecting back to them is this constant theme of what lies within you is stronger than anything that's happened to you or anything that will happen to you because there's a piece of you, you, and this can even be a spiritual conversation or, you know, how, however they would feel comfortable sort of framing it. Some people might say a higher power conversation. Some people are just going to speak, you know, in sort of human terms, but Whatever strength lies inside of them is not negotiable. It's not extinguishable. Their worth is not dependent on external circumstances or what has happened to them. And they might have control taken away from them at different times in their life. But who they are isn't alterable. Their worth isn't alterable. Their really perfect self um, in terms of um, who they are, that isn't changeable depending on what happens to them. And that might be something that we work on over years with people 
and is something that takes a long time and sort of the peeling of an onion of circular healing to sort of work through, I think that's something we're all on a path of working through probably our whole lives, right? So um, the, the goal is simply to create movement there. Uh, and when people have given up on believing in those things themselves, that we are consistent. We believe in things that people have lost belief in for themselves. We, we hold that line. Uh, and it is, that is the most sacred um, that is the most sacred responsibility I think that advocates have is getting to remind people of who they are when they've lost sight of that themselves, remind people of their strengths when they just feel like, you know what, I've, I don't believe that about myself anymore because abuse does that to people. Abuse reframes things in such negative power, like sucking kinds of ways. It, the crazy making in abuse makes people no longer trust their perception of events. They've just often either given up a sense of their own identity uh, or given up on it, basically, or never had it spoken into them in the first place. So when we're reflecting back strengths, you know, as we start, we have to begin with real things that we see in front of us because if it's not genuine it's not going to go anywhere it's not going to be believed it's not respectful so we may start with reflecting back strengths that are like um i noticed that you're really articulate or that that description of what happened to you it's really brave that you're able to even share that right so those are basic surface level reflections just on what we're seeing with people when we first meet them even even like the first hour but as time goes on we build up that credibility because we've heard so much. We've had, you know, show me so many shared experiences. We can say things like, I know you're a good mother. I've seen you be a good mother. And you might feel like, you know, you haven't heard that or you're not believing that right now because that's a hard, hard job. And, you know, we get a lot of negative feedback sometimes and even from our kids who need a lot. But, but I know you're a good mom, right? Or, you, you know, that's just one example. But you might have to almost challenge their negative uh, belief in themselves, but you get that credibility over time. So selective mirroring is one of the most beautiful things we get to do. And then I think the last thing I want to talk about is boundaries in our communication and how that works out. As we build rapport with folks who, you know, their attachments are terrifying to them. They may feel like it's a relief to attach initially, although a lot of times they will attach by attacking a third party. And so we don't want to attach like that. It's a superficial attachment that only will last so long. So we want to attach in a healthy manner, not by tearing down a third party. And you will see that being challenged. But hold your ground and you'll be okay. Um, But then as the attachment builds over time, the more it builds, the more terrifying it may become to them. So we always seek to support the theory of we're a community of support. I'm one person and it's so great that we get along, but you're not just going to see me. You're going to see other people from the team. That's normal. And some of them you're going to really, you know, hit it off with and some of them not as much and that's okay. And that doesn't make any one of them better than another. We're all, you know, you can talk up your team. We, I work with a whole group of wonderful women. All of them are incredibly skilled. All of them really care. And, you know, everyone has like a different way of expressing that. Some will jive more and that's okay. But we, we sort of set the whole thing up for success by creating some of an, like an expansiveness in how we uh, support each other as a team and that we don't tear other folks down 
and that we sort of beat them almost to the punchline, if you will, of what if they don't feel as comfortable with one person than another? Because that's super common. In fact, they will even usually tell you so-and-so, you know, they'll, they'll usually highlight, you know, a person or maybe even multiple people as people that they have a struggle with. And that's normal because their, their attachments are, are terrifying at all, but usually they'll attach to one person and feel like they almost have to degrade other attachments to amplify that one. And we just don't play that game. It's not a game. It's a, it's a trauma response. We just don't uh, go down that road with people. Um, and over time, that modeling can be really effective in helping them trust more than one person. We have to do it for sustainability reasons. As soon as they deeply attach to one person, what if that person um, has to take a family leave? What if that person is just, you know, that's because they're having a sick day on a big, a big day for that person? What, you know, what if we sort of move people's roles around and they take a different position in the organization? The, the way we create healthy long-term sustainability is that we always attach to a whole team. Um, we even also attach to a whole system when it's appropriate. That way it's not even just our agency. That's why we don't case hoard, if you've heard that terminology before. We want to pass people on to mental health. We want to pass people on to victim assistance as their court case is coming. We want to, you know, talk to them about housing options. Like we really want people to have a myriad of services. And that is the way that we create healthy, sustainable healing trajectories with people. Um, It is not a siloed approach within our organization. In fact, anytime I see that, I feel like that's just going to be a recipe for disaster. Um, we all have a lane too, and usually there's an order. And so you know, we're on the triage end. We're on the emergency response end. That's our lane. We do want to be the first call because that's our lane. We don't want to be <laughs> the last call. That's actually people down the road that are doing deep dive work. We're actually beginning to wrap around that and not not step back in a way that leaves people stuck. But um, we really encourage their attachments over time to providers that can be a deeper dive with them, uh, like mental health teams or long-term housing so that they can attach to those people. So it's not about us. It's about them in a model that creates sustainability and, um, models a kind of team mentality that ultimately will serve them better. This might come down to very nuanced sort of troubleshooting of how you deal with, um, when a person's blowing up your phone if you've said that, you know, we'll check in once a day, you may let that phone call roll to voicemail knowing that you've said, you know, you've, maybe you've already checked in once or twice that day and you've said that there's a, there's a whole team of people waiting to talk to you because you want to encourage them to call the hotline, right? And you might even, if you're busy with other clients, text back and say, you know, I'm busy right now. Let's check in at the end of the day or tomorrow, but I would really encourage you to, to call the hotline. And by not consistently breaking your own boundaries, you you modeling that will encourage and even push a little bit um, of the envelope there so that they can maybe seek out the hotline for the first time ever and realize, oh, wow, there are people on that, that want to talk to me and they're actually all nice, it turns out. And they all challenge me in different ways and, and care about me in you know, their own style, but it, it all um, is respectful. And that's just a neat thing for them to get to ex- experience. And if we don't have good boundaries and we're always picking up our phone, they never get to experience that. So I really, really 
encourage healthy boundaries, especially if you're working with someone who you don't see attaching to the other people like you'd hope. They're, you know, they're the person who's like, I hate all your other staff members <laughs> or whatever. That's um, not a responsibility of theirs to um, resolve. That's on us as professionals to not sort of fall into that um, dynamic. So if you are working with someone who is really, really attached and they're not attaching to anyone else, I would say at some point staff it, and it may be that we have to cycle in another staff person once in a while just to create a sense that there are other people out there that are trustworthy, that do show up when they make a scheduled appointment and are there. That way if there's, you know, again, like I said, if there's a sick day or someone changes roles, there's some demonstration of the fact that there are other healthy, safe people within the organization who are going to do similar work. So I think that that's important to to model no matter what agency you work for. And it's not just an advocacy or case management dynamic that occurs. When you're working with people who have attachment disorders, I think this is probably something that we could all adopt within our entire movement. So those are some thoughts about case management, resiliency building, and boundaries and communication. They all come up in our major themes when you're doing long-term community building type work. I would really encourage your questions or thoughts around this. I know that in long-term relationship is where these things play out and get tested. And so there are countless ways in which this will require um, kind of like a clinical debrief, uh, weekly unpackaging with your team, and as things um, sort of spiral and spike sometimes when people's safety is challenged, it will always require adjustment. So this is just a basic framework that will need to get tailored to people's lives and need constant monitoring and adjustment. So I hope that it's a beginning of a roadmap, at least a beginning of the conversation, but I really invite questions and comments and I can't wait to talk to you more. I think our next session is going to be on additional, like a step forward from case management and move into um, what is resiliency building? What is a resiliency curriculum look like as you're working on that in a little bit more of a nuanced fashion? And then we may even have a whole session that's just devoted to what is it like when you're working with someone who one of their coping skills is sort of splitting of relationships because that's such a common behavior and unfortunately I think it gets kind of demonized it's it's not dealt with well I think often by professionals and we want to reframe that through a trauma lens that helps people have compassion for why it happens and then set some boundaries and make healthy decisions there about how to respond to it so I think we'll delve into those topics next but if you have any suggestions for topics you would like to see covered always feel free to message or respond here and I can't wait to see you again until then take great care and we'll see you next time on advocacy archives with Esther